Right, he has not fallen from grace. He is taking some well-earned and well-needed rest, a break from teaching. And this is good for me, good practice, good training. Um, the Bass Pro Shop in Pooler has a new department next to the fishermen section called the Fishers of Men section. And they had a buy one, get two free special on sermons. So I'm here for my third sermon from the Bass Pro Shop. No, I'm kidding. Um, that is a thing you can do, though. You can, you can go online and buy a sermon series, and they send you all the, the PowerPoint slides, they send you all the outlines, and you don't really even have to study. Um, that is not what I have done. Um, I've done my best to be faithful to Scripture and to the teachings of Paul the Apostle out of Ephesians. And because of that, I will be repeating myself again, as I did last week, because Paul continues to teach us much of the same thing in different ways and in different words. Um, in fact, the verses I'll be covering today, verses 8 and 9, are the middle two verses of a four-verse-long sentence in our Bible here. Um, and so to review where we have been, um, remember in verse 6, well, the end of verse 5, um, Paul says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And as we looked at this phrase last week, I took us to the image of Jesus praying on the Mount of Olives, and he cries out in agony. And the apostle records our Savior sweating droplets of blood, being so emotionally stressed that the blood vessels in his face burst and blood poured from his skin. And the point I wanted you to get out of that was that it's okay to not be okay sometimes. It is okay it is expected for this life to be hard. It is expected for us to experience trials and tribulations. And our Creator has built our bodies to have natural physiological responses to those stressors, such as sweating blood, such as feeling so sick that you want to throw up, among other things. Stress, anxiety, depression, these are influenced by physiological phenomena that are outside of the control of our, our will. And I wanted you to understand that experiencing these things is not evidence of a lack of faith. It is not evidence of giving up on God, right? Because our Savior experienced these things, and we wouldn't point at Christ and say, ye of little faith, would we? But the point we wanted to get out of it was ultimately that we must lean on our Savior. We must lean on our Father. Yes, some of these things are physiological in nature, and the Lord has 
made provision for these things in the way of medicine, in the way of doctors. But at the end of the day, the prescription given to us by God is that we must all the more pray. We must all the more rely on him. When our faith is that mustard seed faith, right? Jesus tells us that's all it takes. That's what is required. Just that faith of a mustard seed. Sometimes our faith is great. Sometimes our faith is small. But our Savior is always great. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is always there. He has secured for us salvation. And he has promised to give us comfort and peace. And we also talked out of verse 7 about this phrase, redemption through his blood. And what we explored last week was the purposes of the Old Testament sacrifices. Right? If you had ever been in the temple or been into the Holy of Holies, it was not pretty. They didn't have beautiful flowers. Right? They had troughs of blood that spilled off of the altar. It was more akin to a butcher shop than the pretty architecture that we see in churches today, right? So what we see there is that Christ provides the blood. You read through the Old Testament, and it's blood, blood, blood. The law demands blood. The law demands death. And those sacrifices were imperfect. Paul tells us in Hebrews that the sacrifices of the temple could not perfect our consciences. The Lord is not pleased in the blood of bulls and goats, but the Lord is pleased in the blood of Christ. The Lord is pleased to pour out his wrath on Christ instead of pouring out his wrath on us, his people. So the purpose of these sacrifices of the Old Testament was not to affect atonement, not to affect justification, but it was to remind the people of God of the promise of the coming of Messiah. It was to remind the people of God that blood would be spilled one last time in Christ. Yet they could not see Christ the way we do. Salvation has always been about faith in Christ, but for them, their faith was in the promises of God. Their faith was in the promise given to Abraham, the promise of the blessing of the covenants. But we see Christ, we see the blood clearly. We have received the full revelation of the gospel. And in that we rejoice. So that was most of what we got to last week. So now we're going to move into verses 8 and 9. So verse, uh, start in verse 7 because that's where the English Bible has punctuated the sentences. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, verse 8, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So first, I want us to understand this phrase, lavished upon us. First, what is it talking about? 
It's talking about the redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. The meaning here is that this thing that is being poured out upon us, this grace for redemption, this grace for forgiveness is bountiful, overwhelming, and overflowing. It is complete, it is effectual, it has secured the things that it is purposed for. We should understand that it is not incomplete, right? The salvation of Christ was completed for us on the cross. The work required for salvation was completed on the cross, and that grace is now bountiful, overwhelming, and overflowing. So that is specifically what it's talking about here, this grace for salvation. It is complete. It is effectual. The work has been done, and the Lord is pleased in it. But we might view it as referring even more generally to the bountiful grace of God, the bountiful blessings that he pours out upon us beyond just the grace for faith, beyond just the grace for salvation. And when we talk about those blessings, those blessings that are more than just the blessing of salvation, those blessings that come after salvation, after our conversion, we should recognize that these blessings are not given indiscriminately to all believers. These blessings are not given in the same measure to all believers, right? If they were, then we could expect that at the moment of conversion, we were perfected in this life. But that's not the case. Right? We see in some people maturity. The maturity that comes with time spent in the word. Time spent in the assembly with the saints. And even in those same people, we see a regression of maturity. Do we not? Sometimes you have bad days. Days where your flesh that you are trying to kill rears its ugly head and you misbehave, right? We have those bad days. And sometimes we have good days by the grace of God. But it's important to understand that the context of most of these blessings that we receive from our Father are given in the context of the local church, right? These blessings of God, this grace for maturity, this grace for growing in your faith is given to the saints in the assembly. This is what we talk about when we talk about the means of grace. Being gathered together with the saints, hearing the teaching of the word, taking the Lord's table. I preached a sermon back in maybe September when we were doing the the local church series with the cheeky title, Sometimes God Cannot Be Trusted. And yes, it was clickbait. But the point was that if you are not in the assembly of the saints, if you are not engaging with the means of grace that God has established for growing the maturity of your faith, then you cannot trust that God will do that, right? And so, here's the first hot take of my sermon, is that God's grace for maturing your faith is conditional. 
upon engaging with the means and methods that God has established and promised for that purpose. Now, I used that word conditional. You remember last week we talked about how practical and doctrinal legalists instill fear into the children of God. If you have been victim to that fear, if you have been taught to fear, that word conditional might set something off in your brain. You might have been taught to fear the word conditional. But I want you to understand that words are not heresies. This is a little motto James and I came up with a few years ago. Words themselves are not heresies. We have to put them into a context of a complete thought. Now, some heresies have names, right? We named the heresy of Arius. We called it Arianism. He taught that Jesus was a created being. It's not what I'm talking about here. If I say Arianism, you know that I'm talking about the heresy of Arius. But when I say conditional, that word by itself doesn't mean anything, right? I have to put it into the context of a complete thought. I'm reminded of once I used the word synergy in reference to the way our study of Scripture privately synergizes with the teaching we receive on the Lord's Day. Right? As I read scripture and I learn and I grow in my understanding of Christ, and then I gather with you on the Lord's Day and I hear the word taught, those two things work together. There is synergy. And I was explaining it to this person, and they said, synergism is a heresy. And what they meant was that the doctrine of synergism, that is the doctrine that says that we cooperate with God in our salvation, is a false teaching, which it is, right? There's no cooperation. There's nothing that we bring to the table of salvation except the sin that we needed to be saved from, right? That much was true, but the word synergy doesn't mean anything outside of the context of a complete Thought. It just means working together, right? Synergy. Things work together. And so we should understand that words are not heresies. And when I say the word conditional, I'm not talking about salvation. This grace that was lavished upon us for the redemption by his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses is unconditional. The election of God is unconditional. But God has established in the context of the local church things that we engage with for maturing our faith. And if we do not engage with those things, we have no reasonable expectation that we will receive the blessings attendant to those things. You might hear the words ordinary and extraordinary thrown around. When we talk about the ordinary means of Grace, we mean those things that God ordinarily works through. Those things that God has said, this is for you. Do these things. These are the blessings that come with it. Ordinary means of grace, which are the things that we've talked about many times before. The things that we do when we gather, um, the preaching of the word, the declaration of the gospel. But sometimes God does work in 
extraordinary ways, right? But the difference is you cannot presume upon the extraordinary work of God. You cannot make an assumption about what God is going to do if God has not told you he's going to do it, right? He may work, he can work, and he does work outside of the clearly defined means that he has given to us. But we can't assume that he's going to do that for any given person, for any given reason, for any given time. So these blessings that he has promised to pour out on his church, he has promised to pour out on his church. And as we looked at that word church, that word ecclesia, we see in scripture that it refers to the local assembly. When the apostles tell us about the church, he's talking about you guys. He's talking about the people of God gathered to hear the word. Paul goes on, redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And so this part of the sermon is going to basically be a repeat of when Paul said according to the purpose of his will, because he's saying the same thing, right? According to the purpose of his will in all wisdom and insight. But what I want you to understand with this is that Paul is again talking about the nature of God's election. He's talking about God's free and sovereign decree to save his people. Now, I have a lot of experience arguing uh, with people on Facebook. I've more or less stopped doing that because it's generally not fruitful. Um, but people love to argue about election, right? Um, And when people bring up Ephesians 1 talking about election, they really like to key in on those sort of low-hanging fruit words for proving your point. Verse 4, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, in love he predestined us. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. And so those verses here in Ephesians 1 are very often ripped from the context of Ephesians 1 and just looked at by themselves. But there's so much more here in Ephesians 1 that teaches us about God's sovereign election. And this is one of those phrases, in all wisdom and insight. So before we get to understanding what Paul's talking about here, we need to first understand God's justice. The demands of God's justice. What is it? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that Each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. No one escapes the scope of God's justice. We all will present a case before him for what we have done. We will answer to the law, and those who are in Christ will point to Christ and say, His righteousness is mine. Romans 2 Verses 1 through 5, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge, those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Isaiah 61, I, the Lord, love justice. Isaiah 30, verse 18, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. So what's the point? God is compelled to be just. God cannot not be just. One, because he's promised, right? God cannot go back on his promises. We saw that out of Numbers 23. He's not a man that he should lie, nor is he a son of man that he should change his mind. If he has promised to do something, he will do it. Because God has promised to be just. Because God has promised to judge the wicked, he will judge the wicked. But even more so, he is justice. And I don't want to get into the philosophy of theology proper here. But when we say that God is justice, it means that everything he does expresses that. Everything he does is a just thing to do. The Lord cannot do something that goes against his nature, right? So what I want you to understand is that God is compelled to be just. God doesn't have a choice when it comes to justice. He must be just. So when we talk about wisdom and insight, we've mentioned it before, we want to talk about this idea, this teaching, that God's election is somehow according to his knowledge of what you would do. Paul tells us in verse 8 that this dispensation of grace is given in all wisdom and insight. But if his sovereign choice of election were actually according to his foreknowledge of what we would do, then God's election is compelled by his justice. Do you see that? It's not compelled by his liberty. It's not compelled by his wisdom and his insight. It is compelled by the facts of the choices that he saw that we would make. He would only be allowed to choose those who chose him. And so this idea that God's election comes from the simple foreknowledge of God destroys the wisdom and insight of God. It makes him reliant on us for his decision-making. Turn to Luke chapter 18. This is what I had uh, Brother Luke, not the apostle, but Luke, the guy sitting right there, read for us. Luke chapter 18. I want you to see this because Jesus tells us about the person who says that God chose me because I chose him. Starting in verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So what's the point here? This idea that God checked to see who would choose him, and that that is what election is talking about. This false gospel of the evangelical cults of decisionism, that God's waiting for your decision. It's up to you. This makes you like this Pharisee who says, I thank God that I am righteous. I thank God that I have decided to follow Jesus. Now, before you start tearing that song out of your hymnal, there's an important distinction I want you to understand. We have decided to follow Jesus, haven't we? At some point in your life, you made a decision to follow Christ, right? But the important distinction is that we have done so through the empowering grace poured out upon us by the Holy Spirit that is only given to the elect of God for their conversion in his timing. Right, the false gospels that I'm talking about say that God has done just enough to enable you to exercise the freedom of your choice. But when we look at the wisdom and insight of God, when we look at his sovereignty, when we look at the overwhelmingly abundant grace poured out on his people, we know that God has done everything that is necessary for our salvation. This false gospel of the free will of man says that God has made a way and it is up to me to walk that path. That When you arrive at God, you praise him for making it possible Whether you know it or not, you praise yourself for completing the task. Instead, how are we saved? Because like the tax collector, we cry out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Propitiate me, God. Satisfy your wrath in me, God. On the cross of Christ, God's wrath is poured out for the sins of his people. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are given life. We are given the gift of grace and we cry out, propitiate me, Lord. So God, in his wisdom and insight, according to the purpose of his will, appointed the salvation of his 
people according to his power, according to his methods, according to his timing. He's not waiting on us to make that decision. He has appointed the time and the place. He has appointed the means and the methods where he will pour out his grace overwhelmingly on his sheep. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. I remember I told you verses 7 through 10 was actually all one really long sentence. At least in my English Bible it is. I'm not sure exactly how the Apostle Paul intended this to be punctuated. He didn't tell us. But we need to examine the context of these, um, these individual phrases that we're examining. So, verse 9, Paul says, making known to us the mystery of his will. So let's review at least this last sentence that we've been talking about. We begin with the Redemption through his blood. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. And so Paul first explains the measure with which God has blessed us and the source of that blessing. According to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. The measure is that it is overwhelming and bountiful. The source is the riches of his grace. And then Paul tells us about the, a little bit about the decision-making process that God goes through there. It's not based on our works. It's not based on any merit. But it's based upon God's own wisdom and insight for working out his plan. The fulfillment of his purposes. And so Paul now explains exactly how all of this works out for us in time. The mystery of his will. This mystery is revealed in the effectual calling of the elect of God. All these blessings describe the purposes, the reasons that Paul gives us. They come down to the revelation of the gospel of Christ to his people. That the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We see and understand the work of Christ. We know how God saves his people. Paul tells us in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so this mystery is revealed to us in Christ. So why is it a mystery? What didn't we understand until Christ? Christ. This mystery of the gospel was not revealed to the Old Testament saints. They didn't understand how it worked. They didn't know who the Messiah was. When he showed up, the Jews that were around didn't even recognize him. And this explains to us, again, the purpose of these Old Testament sacrifices. They presented to the people of God an incomplete and mysterious picture of the promised Messiah. And then finally, in Christ, the mystery is fully revealed. 
Turn with me to Hebrews. I'm going to do that thing where I just read a bunch of Hebrews <laughs> instead of explaining to you what Paul's talking about. Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by these same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. For when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And so this is the revelation that the Old Testament saints didn't have. This revelation of the Messiah this revelation of the work that he would do in sanctifying his people once and for all through the sacrifice of his body. This is the mystery that is fully revealed. And more of that mystery that we see uh, exposed in the Gospels is that these Jews, they thought it was all about them. Right, we talked about that last week or the week before. Um, we talked about the, the Pharisees who, we are children of God because we are sons of Abraham. You are not sons of Abraham, so you are not children of God. For them, the mystery was that Christ came to save the Gentiles. For them, that mystery was that Christ's salvation was for his people. True Israel, spiritual Israel, the children of the promise of Abraham are the children of God. And every that extends to every race, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. We saw that out of Revelation 7 or 8, where the great multitude gathered in heaven, worshiping the Lamb in every language. These are the mysteries that are now revealed in Christ. The mystery of his will. Now in verse 9, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. He hath purposed in himself. Recall that when we talk about God's purposing all of these things according to his own will, we have security in that. We can feel secure in the promises of God. We can have assurance of our salvation because God has promised to complete that work in us. God has promised to preserve us until the day of judgment.
back in Luke 18. Now the first eight verses. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When I first read this, studying this week, it seemed odd that Jesus would compare God the Father to an unrighteous judge, right? One of the things that Jesus came to teach is that he's a righteous judge. One of the things when we talked about God being a God of justice was that God is a righteous judge. And so this comparison to an unrighteous, wicked judge seemed really odd. I think Jesus uses this particular comparison in order to help us relate to God as a judge. And by that I mean God uses this analogy of an unrighteous judge in order um, to relate to us how we continuously bother God with our constant prayer. Like, do you ever feel like you're selfishly bugging God about the same things over and over and over again? So unlike this unrighteous judge who just grants the petition so that the lady will leave him alone, God, the righteous judge, rejoices in our continual petitions. God, the righteous judge, is faithful to bless his people, to answer our prayers, to provide assurance and security out of joy and love for us. Unlike this wicked judge that Jesus tells us about in this parable. The point there is so that we can see the contrast, that God is nothing like this, but we understand where both where the lady is coming from and where that wicked judge is coming from, right? If you have children, you understand where the judge is coming from. Mom, mom, mommy, dad, dad, daddy. <laughs> you're sitting there working on something, you're doing something, you're trying to you know, escape the world for just a minute, and the kids are right there. And then you blow up, you say, what? And they're like, can you throw this trash away for me? And they're standing three feet away from the trash can. <laughs> we feel like that wicked judge and when we look at that we can remember God's nothing like that God rejoices when we say Father, Father, Father God rejoices when we speak to him God rejoices when we petition him and he tells us he will not delay long over us. He will give us justice. And this purpose of God is set forth in Christ. So remember, what are we talking about? We're talking about the redemption by his blood. 
the forgiveness of our trespasses, from what source the riches of his grace, and in what measure bountiful, overflowing, overwhelming. Why did he do this? According to his purposes. His purpose that he set forth in Christ. He connects this all once again back to Christ for the 17th time in only a few verses. Remember I said Paul is repeating himself, and so my outline here looks like it did two weeks ago. We're going to go back to John 17. Remember we talked about that covenant of redemption. We talked about that heavenly transaction where God the Son is given a work to do, a work to complete in exchange for the promise of a blessing where he would be glorified and given a bride. John 17, Father, the hour has come to glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you in the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now... Father, and remember, Jesus makes a demand of God. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so we have this twofold purpose set forth in Christ. Okay, Paul says, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And this purpose set forth in Christ It's twofold. One, the redemption of his people. And by that work, the glorification of the son in the marriage of the bride and the bridegroom. So all the stuff that we've been talking about has been working towards this marriage between Christ and his bride. That is the end of all things. That is the work that he came to do, to redeem us and that He would be glorified by the Father in his marriage to his people. Right? We go to Revelation, the very end of the whole book. The Apostle John is given a vision of a marriage feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb. I turned too far. I made it to weights and measures and maps. Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. That's us. We're there. We're in this picture. We are the great multitude, the people of God, gathered together as the bride of Christ at the marriage feast. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this down. Right, you listen or write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
So we are washed clean by the atoning work of Christ, right? The work that he came to do was to make us presentable to his Father. And we are clothed in fine linen, which the angel tells us through John here is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so we need to be careful, right? We need to not make a mistake here. False teachers will point to this and say, see, you still got to do your good works. You still got to check your box. You still have to constantly be working to clothe yourself in fine linen so that we may be presentable at the feast. And if you don't, maybe you're not invited. No. Read verse 8 again. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. It was granted to you to clothe yourself in fine linen, bright and pure. Ephesians 2.10 We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These good works, the fine linen that we clothe ourselves in, these are prepared beforehand by God that we should walk in them, big and small, lots of them, a little bit of them, all of it prepared by God beforehand that we should walk in them. We are counted righteous on account of Christ's work. Right? That's the only perfect work. The work of Christ is the only perfect work. But we rejoice in those good works that God has prepared for us. We rejoice in the good works that God has equipped us to do. And we know that he is faithful to work those things in us. He has promised to prepare good works for us to do, and he is faithful to give us the grace to do them. He is faithful to give us the power to do them. God has clothed us in the fine linen of the good works in which we walk. This is the purpose set forth in Christ. One, that he would redeem his people. And two, that he would be glorified in his marriage to his bride. And this purpose set forth in Christ is that he would wash us clean and that he would clothe us in the fine linen. It was granted to us by God. All of this is worked out in Christ. All of this is worked out by Christ. It is all of Christ. I'm not going to get into verse 10 this week. I'll get into it next time. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have prepared for us the good works that we will walk in. And we thank you that through the power of your spirit, we've been given a desire to walk in those things. But most importantly, God, we rejoice in your grace. God, drown us in the bountiful and overflowing grace of Christ. 
And God, we thank you for your word that through it we may grow and that we may understand these things. That through it you have revealed what was once a mystery to your people. And God, as we take of your table, give us that reminder. Give us that grace that comes from tasting and seeing the work of our Savior. In Christ we pray. Amen.